0: Welcome back to The Intersectional Diary. Today, our guest is a Harvard grad, canceled by social media, BLM activist and ex-Deloitte employee, Clara Janover. Hi, Clara. We're so excited to have you on today.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be here today. Um, and How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I just got into my where I'm going to be for the next two months, which is Wyoming. Um, After having lived on the road slash California slash Connecticut slash New York City um, over the course of the pandemic due to housing insecurity and flux in that, but I'm (laughs) doing very well right now.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, we're very excited to have you here. So your intro was a very lengthy but summarized version of your eventful year. Yes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your name, pronouns, background, and how you went viral?
1: Yeah, so I'm Clara Janover, she, her, hers. I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut for the first 20 years of my life. Um, I luckily somehow got into Harvard and um, am now finishing my last semester there. And I'm extremely excited about that. And over the course of that, a lot has happened very um, complicated. So, you know, grew up very low income with a single mother. My mother passed away my junior junior year of college. And then, you know, a year later, a pandemic happened. And then a couple months later, I was somehow a trending hashtag on Twitter. And getting from point A to point B to point C to point D mm-hmm. it's very complicated. <laughs> but basically... Um, I made a TikTok in April, as many did during the pandemic, and I made a lot of content as just sort of a satirical, um, opinionated person. And it didn't initially start out solely for activism, but I've always been somebody who um, you know, activism has been part of my blood, part of my lineage. Um, my mom was a union organizer, activist. Her mom was a suffragette type of thing. Um, and then here I am. And so obviously when I was making content, a lot of it had to do, or a lot of the comments had to do with the fact that I'm a female, Asian, and at Harvard. And I started to progress into um, somebody who stood up against that and, and didn't really want to tolerate it. And then Black Lives Matter really started to gain acceleration in June. Um, and mm-hmm. I had been very involved in the 2014 Black Lives Matter, um, you know, series of and waves of protests, etc. Um, from when I was in high school. And so this was very natural for me. And I made a lot of what I considered um, either satirical or hyperbolic content for Black Lives Matter awareness, education. Um, it was something that A lot of people were fortunately doing, you know, social media for about two months really kind of paused and focused solely on information and awareness and activism, which was extraordinary to see. And Mm -hmm. um, very quickly, you know, because I had gained a following, a lot of my videos went viral. And that really led prominent conservatives on Twitter, et cetera, to identify me as a person. And so Jack Pasabiak was the first person to tweet out my name and a video, which led a lot of people to my profile. And then in the course of a couple of hours, it went from me being a normal person living at my friend's house at the time to all of a sudden I was getting tens of thousands of hate comment messages, etc. Um, the Daily Mail was writing about me within the same day. It was an overwhelming experience, all to do with one TikTok. Um, not the mm-hmm. original TikTok that um, had gone viral that Jack Posaviak tweeted, but a separate one that was an analogy, a satirical hyperbolic bit that I made. Um, the exact wording was like, the next person who has the sheer nerve, the sheer caucasity to say all lives matter, I'm to stab you and while you're bleeding out, I'm gonna point to my paper cut and say, my cut matters too. And <laughs> Zoom, like, I used different video effects. It was something that, like, it was a type of um, satirical bit that I truthfully know would not have been as controversial had I not been mm-hmm. a woman, Asian, um, and and someone that people wouldn't have associated with, like, humor or, in, or anything beyond, like, either submissive or nerdy intellect. Um, right. And, yeah, so basically just on June 30th to July 1st, like, my life was completely transformed. I was trending on Twitter. I was getting, you know, so much of a following. I gained like 400,000 followers in the course of a week on TikTok. Um, Really prominent people were reaching out to me ranging from you know, TikTok creators to actual and legitimate celebrities who were were reaching out to me. And it was overwhelming. I didn't have a team. I didn't have a manager. It was just me. Um, And then on July 1st, which was less than 24 hours after I had gone viral, I lost my job with Deloitte. And they called me. It was like a 30-second conversation, kind of felt like a really awkward breakup. Um, And they rescinded my full-time job offer with them um, that was supposed to start in like the summer of 2021. Um, and I posted a video of me like reacting and, and being very viscerally impacted by all of what was happening and also, you know, I don't know many people who have ever endured like literally like my Instagram and Facebook weren't working because I was getting so many DMs and, and you know, comments and things like that. And and basically I I really consider my last like five months from July onward as sort of t- trying to deal with the aftermath of it all and like deal with mm-hmm. this new wave of support and following but also again like being this activist for other people as well as myself. Um and so that yeah, I guess that was such a long answer to what your question was, but
0: No, I mean, I guess that makes sense cuz first of all, I know that when you since I follow you on social media as well, um You had shown that AOC reached out. You said one of the people that um, you had a lot of celebrities and stuff reaching out. And AOC reached out in um, admiration and in support of you, which I think is amazing. She's this amazingly progressive politician who is for the people. And she shows that every day by the work she does. And to have her reach out to you, did that feel like, oh, my God, I'm doing something right? Or was that just more of like a fan moment type of situation. (laughs) It was both. It was both. I
1: think that it's easy for me to forget the gravity of everything that I have done. But also in comparison to someone like AOC, I'm like, so I forget that I'm to some people a much lesser amount, like inspiring or resilient or strong or whatever people see me as. And it was just very wonderful because for me, it would be so easy to see somebody who went through a violent, you know, experience on the internet as like strong, and that's what she said. She's like, you are very strong, and it was it wasn't like she reached out to me randomly. Like I had messaged her in you know admiration and respect and appreciation, and then mm-hmm. he like responded and was just like, oh, wow. I oh <laughs> wow, and you know things like that, and it was really meaningful because you know looking back on all that I did, like it's not necessarily that I'm proud of everything or that. Mm-hmm. Everything was like done perfectly, but I'm mm-hmm. very proud of like the net way that I reacted and responded and the agility of it all was very, like, I don't even know how I did it. I, I, I feel yeah. very like dissociated from it, but it also is something that, you know, this newfound following and and publicity, I guess one could call, is... Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to forget how positive it can be as well for for someone like healing and going through something to have like people they look up to um, comment on them. Yeah.
0: I mean, I feel like that must have been such a great way to just kind of like a sign sort of situation like, okay, yes, I'm getting a lot of backlash for this, but I'm standing up for a community that um, needs our help right now. And to see my Um, to see somebody that I admire so much, tell me that I am strong and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing must have, it's just such a great feeling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think one of the biggest feelings that I felt and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later is that, you know, I, although I am an Asian woman, like I'm not black and I'm, I'm standing up for black lives matter. And it's a big Mm -hmm. question of, of, am I doing it right? Am I even allowed or should I even be doing it? Um, And I think that there are these overarching questions of you're never going to do everything right, but you can go in a direction that you see as something that is right. And then you can fix it if it's not right. And I think that that's something that I've been trying my best to do and to have someone like AOC who in such a short period of time and in such a monumentally inspiring way did that is is Mm is wow um <laughs> and i know that she she's out there supporting hundreds of thousands and millions of people who are all looking up with her in in complete fan fandom for her but
0: it is very. <laughs> um i mean yeah you can't make everybody happy but at the end of the day as long as you know that you're doing good and you're helping other people that's all you can do yeah yeah um so you had mentioned that you'd been getting a lot of hate mail um hate messages death threats and all of that So how did you deal with that? And I'm guessing it affected your mental health as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I wish that I could say that it was something that impacted me more than it did. I think it was more of this thing that I realized was happening to me. It was kind of like watching a house burn down in front of me, but I didn't really know what to do besides acknowledge it. And I I really, fortunately, and this is a really terrible outcome of, of, having grown up on social media as our generation is but like hate comments and messages are much more hurtful from people you know than from people you don't and having been cyber bullied and going through that era of like cyber bully-esque experiences with people you go to school with like this was something that I was like really not that moved by because I was like this is who are these people I don't know I don't have to like and it was also so much of it I think that yeah. If it were something that, like, I remember when I first started getting hate on TikTok, it really felt hurtful. I was like, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? But then when you have tens of thousands of people doing it to you over the course of a couple of days, like, I didn't register it. I didn't process it. I didn't care. Like, people sent me, I got hundreds of voicemails of people describing how they would want to, like, rape and murder and dismember me. I had people sending me, like, coordinates saying, like, meet me here, bring a knife. Like, all these like oh my things like people made videos being like tie a neck tie a noose around your neck and I'll pull the car type of thing and for me like that was kind of funny like it, it really it wasn't I wasn't scared I wasn't hurt it was just genuinely like the people I, I mean this is a really funny story like not actually funny but the mm-hmm. woman had sent me like immensely horrible messages like and I just I didn't open them. I didn't. I mean, I like looked at them, glanced at them. She has a following on TikTok of like a couple hundred thousand. And then she like responded to the message a couple of weeks ago, which is like months after it happened was like, oh my God, like, I don't know who sent these messages. Like, why would I have sent you these messages? And I was like, because like you saw like, what i was doing and she's like i have no recollection like i never would have sent these messages and i was like no no no. like you made multiple videos about me like you send me these uh-huh. messages intentionally but they like don't remember you know so the people oh, what the fuck? and sending hate messages to people are doing it at such a prolific rate that they don't even remember and that's something that like really helped me in terms of like i think it would have been a lot more painful had i received like letters right like because then i'm like someone yeah. really took time to do this but like messaging and commenting is such a mindless thing and to do it mm-hmm. in such a cruel way sucks but like for me it was just like what's happening like I think the comments sucked a little bit more because they were public right like mm. publicly you could see threads of people hating you like it's still I can't read a lot of I can't read comment sections on hate videos I can't read reddit you know sub comment sections because it's just so overwhelming to see people talking about me publicly Mm -hmm. um versus like messages and things like that I think that that was something that was hugely hurtful like I've had hundreds if not thousands of negative messages and or videos made about me on TikTok and YouTube some with like millions of views and Mm -hmm. it like hurts because it it feels like an improper way of journaling or, or journalism you know of like and even journalism is supposed to, you're supposed to get like a statement or at least request a statement from a person that you're writing about. But, you know, Fox News, Daily Mail, New York Post didn't. Like they just wrote about me and and were totally, you know, un, you know didn't care about the fact that they were misrepresenting or like saying like defaming um, things about me. And that was something that was my first experience in realizing how unfair the internet and stories will be. And that yeah. really impacted my mental health of like, I forget that this this world, this digital world that we're in is, is so violent and, and volatile. Um, but in terms of like my overall mood, like, yes, of course, like these messages mm-hmm. were overwhelming, but not in the same way that the principle or like the thought that it takes to make people do what they do did. I think that was just like a really, really big learning curve.
0: I mean the fact that people have the audacity to sit there and be like I'm going to do all these horrendous things to you and think that that's an okay thing to do like yeah. the, I, I mean you know you see and hear about all of this stuff on on tv shows like on svu or something like that and you to have it happen to ha- get death threats like that firsthand you're a stronger woman than I am because I'm No kidding, if that's something that had happened to me, I would have been gone running to my mom and dad and be like, lock all the doors. I don't know who's gonna come to my house. Like Yeah. That's mind-blowing.
1: It's very and I think the biggest thing about the internet is that once you're a figure, people not only dismember you, but they feel entitled to tell you that your response is almost always going to be invalid. So like if I were to say, oh, I've gotten death threats, and this is a lot, people are like, everyone gets death threats. This is the internet. What do you think is happening? If I were to say, like, I'm overwhelmed by the negativity, people are like, well, everyone gets negativity. You're not Charlie D'Amelio. You're not Angela Davis. Like, how on earth are you going to size your struggle or your experience in comparison to them? And it really genuinely does make everything that you do feel like it's obsolete or indefensible. And then, you know, for months without even realizing it, I was living my life defensively, like a defensive driver driving on the freeway during high traffic, um, where like everyone is just doing their own thing. And I was there, like trying to maneuver myself around them. But I was also like, being teleprompted, but I was voluntarily teleprompting myself. Like social media is such an odd way to put yourself through so much pain and and scrutiny just by existing. And that's something I never thought about is like, oh my God, you know, I don't keep up with like street TikTok, but I see how all they do is dance. And yet somehow they're still like on TMZ. They're somehow still such a crux of our daily dose of reality TV shows. And I'm like, and it's solely because of what like what they post that people are investigating so heavily, um, irrelevant to like them. It's like they're Disney Channel stars, but they don't have a TV show, you know? Like yeah. there's no outlet. It's we're in no man's territory, we're in the wild west. Um <laughs> to figure out something. Um, and it's it's very, it's very, you know, unprecedented. And there's no way to standardize, right? Because they're like Technology and social media is evolving so much that the way that people are using it evolves every month, let alone every year, every generation. Like you can't compare vine stars to TikTok stars. And you can't even compare, you yeah. know, like TikTok stars to like other TikTok famous people, you know? And it's it's a lot and it's confusing, mm-hmm. right? And it's also, I think, something that taking a step back, which I've been doing, is like, wow you know, people are so engaged yeah. in others and it it really genuinely is, is like, wow, that's a lot of pressure and responsibility on the people who are posting, right? Mm-hmm. Who never thinks that what they're going to do is going to blow up or be taken out of context. Um, and then it, they can, you know?
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, negative comments at this point, especially on TikTok, have become so normalized. Yeah. It's just I feel like people don't put a second thought into it before posting or before writing all that stuff. I mean, I'm talking about videos that I've seen. I followed some people on TikTok from the beginning and they are doing these amazing things. We have people spreading body positivity, showing that, you know, it's okay to be different sizes. We have people um, spreading mental health awareness, all of this stuff. And then in the beginning, people were on their side and messaging them saying, oh, my God, I love that you're doing this. Oh, my goodness, you're such an inspiration, et cetera, et cetera. And at three, four months down the road, now people are commenting along the lines of, okay, we get it. You're raising body positive body positivity. Like, we're over it. Can we move on? It's like, yeah, these are the same things you were praising them for. And now we've reached a point where you're putting them down for it. Like, I don't understand. It's also
1: like people are put into a box they're like one-dimensionalized so if your body positivity it's like your body positivity and then if you keep doing it it's like oh come on like you're just doing it for clout and attention and then if you move on god forbid it's like oh so now do you not care now that, now that you have a following like now are you exactly and it's, it's it's an unwinnable game that i think you don't realize because when you're growing in virality it's fun and you think that like you can do whatever you want. And I think that Mm -hmm. that limitlessness exists for predominantly men and predominantly white women. And then you look at how scrutinized the mistakes of especially people of color, especially women of color are, how Mm -hmm. everything that we say not only is taken literally, but interpreted solely how somebody would interpret something being said from an Asian woman or from a Black woman. And now I go on TikTok, I I try, I don't even go, and I, I see these videos of like Asian women or Black women doing educating things and using sarcasm and hyperbole. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't imagine the number of people taking this out of context, misinterpreting it, taking it literally. And I just have like, flashbacks to it being flashed on, you know, Fox News. And for mm-hmm. me, like that's how I interacted on social media. Was like, if I'm gonna be on Fox News, again, I can be because I'm an indignant, opinionated, outspoken person, but I can't make it something that's sarcastic because God or or like, you know, figurative to a degree that involves what, violence or like emotion. Like I can't cry. I can't yell. I can't use you know, like gruesome language. I can't, speak, mm. I can't talk about sex in a way that is like, what the hell are we doing to people who like are multifaceted online, you know? Um, and it's, it's this idea of like maintaining what you have and what you're doing. And it was something that even I realized, like, I'm not, you know i never wanted to be famous i don't want to be famous (laughs) it's easy to like see the spotlight and to have so many people reaching out for things like collaborations and photo shoots and think like this is so fun Meeting famous people meeting influencers even during a pandemic which is really irresponsible it's Mm -hmm. like via zoom having these opportunities and then it's like well like why? Like what, to do this, you have to stay relevant and to stay relevant, you have to put yourself through so much. Um, and, and all of it is, is not up to you. It's about what other people want you to be relevant for. Um, it's it's a very toxic and dehumanizing mindset. And so it's almost like when I see people take a step back is when I'm like, good, like you can come back, you can do it. You can make this your job. You can have fun with it, but like Mm -hmm. that, this is what you want to do, even if it is still there without you.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, I completely agree. I do want to go back to the comment that you said that you had companies like the Daily Mail and Fox Mm -hmm. and all these publications writing about you without ever talking to you about it. It's kind of just taking what they see on social media, and what they're reading from other people and just using that as the as basically the Bible will be like, this is the truth and this is what it is, instead of talking to the person who's actually going through it. Yeah. So did you ever reach out to any of these publications and be like, no, this is actually incorrect? Or did they reach out to you afterwards? Like, what was the situation there?
1: No, none of the none of the journalism or like I guess fake news uh, things that published about me ever reached out or apologized. Deloitte never reached out or apologized after after firing me. It was something that, and I I was overwhelmed. I didn't really have it in me to continue to reach out to them. But it was also mm-hmm. what I noticed was like, for example, these articles would be written about me based on either what people said on the internet or what they observed. And then people mm-hmm. would be using that as like a source and say like, this girl's a pathological liar because she says this, but the Daily Mail says this. And it was like, what? Like,
0: they didn't say <laughs> Neither I mean.
1: of them are you. <laughs> it, it was just something that like, the amount of scrutiny and gaslighting that occurred just because other people were saying things about me was just like, what, what on earth, like this is gaining traction. You know, all of like so many videos are being made about how much of a liar and how much of a scammer I was, you know, without actually yeah. ever speaking to me. And it, it really was something that, you know, I saw just catapult so much out of my control. And at the time, I was only, I was like, I can't say anything without really putting intention into it because it will be weaponized against me. So I like Mm -hmm. wedded videos made about me. I retweeted things about me, but I was like, I, I don't want, I like, people are going to speak for me. I need to put something out. And which is why I wrote my article. And even, even now I'm like, I should make a YouTube video, but like the thought of doing that and going through that amount of archiving and speaking on behalf of myself, knowing that everything is gonna be micro-analyzed. Um, right. Or even just like the idea that people are then gonna be seeing me again on video. It, it's daunting, you know, and it puts all the onus. It's like this public trial that, that doesn't have due process and everyone who's watching is a juror. Um, and, you know, it is something that like, every journalism or every news outlet that reached out to me after the fact were so keen on being like, that is unethical journalism, you know, like unethical to even not reach out. And even if they have no intention of including or or speaking on behalf of you or having a statement. Um, But that's, that's what news can do now. It's so fast. You know, these articles were written within hours. Like it was something where I didn't even realize that I was a sensation until I was seeing myself plastered. I was on the Snapchat discovery page, right? Like it was all of these things that people were reaching out and I was like, oh, is this just because I'm being dramatic and like being butthurt about this? And then it was like, no, like this is an actual thing that's happening. Um, And a lot of people came to my rescue, which was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I wish that news and journalism outlets had covered that more. Like I felt so... We defended at the time, which was like, I didn't have it in me to defend myself. And it, it felt very wonderful that people were for me, um, especially people who like are bigger names, who like, ne- I never would have, I never reached out to anyone to defend me. I never reached out right. to anyone to have me or feature me or speak on me. And and to see all those people and their willingness to was so like heartwarming and like i Mm. i didn't appreciate it at the time i couldn't but i i still was so appreciative and, and will always be for those people who who really just like i mean to them it was nothing like you make a million videos on tiktok a week but to me yeah wow thank you like you didn't have to i'm just like a random person you know um who's kind of getting dragged and canceled on the internet
0: but, yeah, I mean, I guess that's like the upsides of the social media and all of that as well, right? There's people that are going to put you down, but there's also some great people on social media that are going to come to your defense and that are going to help you build back up when when the media is trying to break you down. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to see that when that be able to see that when people are coming to rescue. It's like, oh, okay, like I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this, and I have people by my side, yeah. even though I don't know them. They understand what I'm going through, and they want to help me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Sorry, you had mentioned that you were fired from Deloitte about 24 hours after this whole incident took place. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of get into that because I know that Deloitte has, at least on its its website, talks about how they are very much um, activists and they are all for doing the right thing, diversity, all of that stuff. And then here you are speaking up for diversity, speaking up for the BLM movement and are being punished for it. Like, how did you talk to them about that? Did they tell you why you're being let go? Like, how did that go down? I mean, I think the easiest thing for them to do was to say that that violence is
1: never an appropriate thing that they could condone, right? But it was very clear, and even the wording in the conversation was, you know, we're getting a lot of pressure from people. And so when you're in a client-facing job you're told not to be controversial. You know, uh, it's something that employees have been fired from Target and Walmart for saying that working conditions aren't ideal. Um, Mm -hmm. Teachers have been fired for having histories of being models, right? And, And it's just something that there's this demand of being completely anonymously perfect for the job that you're doing and not making a wave. And it's something where doctors and women constantly lose jobs for posting bikini pictures um, or for making a statement about something. And I think that it's important not to categorize those in the same as like those people who lose their jobs for having videos of them yelling the N-word at Black people or like making slurs or saying these derogatory things. Because the idea that liberation is inconsistent with politeness is really problematic Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, that was originally why I reached out to AOC. You know, she has this remarkable statement of hers that, like, progress is when we do not um, consider politeness to be equivalent to silence, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's something that, for me, I get it, you know? It it was, it's something that, like, it's so easy to say that you care about issues and then do nothing to progress the issues at hand positively. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to say, like, I care about Black Lives Matter and I care about feminism and then continue to not fire male employees for sexually harassing female interns. It's so easy to say things like that. And we rarely see that, you know, the optics of everything is so intertwined with this idea of non-confrontational or, you know, non-controversial. And that is something that is fundamentally and always will be inconsistent with activism. Activism Mm -hmm. is never not radical at the time that it's occurring, but it's something that like, Right now saying separate is not equal. Brown versus Mm. education is not radical, but it was radical for decades before and for decades when, you know, appellate courses were building up and the NAACP was building up series of cases and, and jurisprudence in order to bring Brown versus Board of Ed to the Supreme Court, you know, and my mom was a union organizer so i heard you know it's something that like people don't want to hire union organizers um i had worked at planned parenthood in high school and Mm -hmm. i was instructed by people to not put that on like a resume because you know places don't want to hire radical feminists who are working for places that potentially have a board of fashion procedures and that's something that for me is very easy on the outside even to say like, well, I don't want to work for an employee like that, even though places like Deloitte have a history of exploitation and working with these multi-billion dollar conservative corporations or industries or people. And Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways, it is, you know, a lot of people are like, it's a blessing that you're not working there. And I'm like, yeah, I Mm -hmm. I do. But I also think like the most common way for people to see change as possible in a way that's self-serving is like, I'll change it once i'm in there once i'm like a leader there i can
0: mm-hmm.
1: have a diverse group i can do all this and that's true i think you know the number of philanthropists in the world are rising because of the number of people who went into corporations and are now devoting a life to bettering progress but it's mm-hmm. also, you know for me it's like not having that ability to sell out or justify you know years worth of exploiting capitalism for my own gain You know, it's something that like, yeah, it would have been wonderful to for the first time in my life have housing insecurity for more than a year, you know, but it also is like the cost of, of doing that, I think is something that, you know, I don't know if Bain or McKinsey or BCG or, you know, all these other or strategy and would have fired me. I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, so I can't speak to them. And I I truthfully don't even want to speak to Deloitte because honestly, like my opinion about Deloitte is like. Deloitte like I think that I was portrayed by how they gaslit me following the incidents of like claiming that I was just this like unstable pathological liar essentially but you know it is something that I think more and more people are realizing how apparently being provocative in a progressive way is almost always going to be something that could ruin your life And that's Mm -hmm. a terrifying fear, right? Like that's a huge fear for people. So many of my friends who are just as politically inclined and aware and and do so much in terms of like behind the scenes um, organizing would never post something on social media that would put their face at risk, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's something that I get, but it is something that is so fundamentally heartbreaking you know and and then i see places like deloitte have these like statements of like we need to uplift activists and like they hired me because of my history and activism and organization and then you know them essentially being so client driven that you're expendable you know like yeah it's kind of like all of the people who died building the empire state building or the great wall of china that are just built into it you know it's like that's the the outcome of what they're doing is so much more important than anyone who could possibly be contributing to it um, and that was that was definitely a a sad but like important lesson to learn. Um, I wish that I didn't have to learn it the way that I did, but mm-hmm. but it it now has allowed me and kind of forced me to see differently about where I go vocationally, job wise, for the rest of my life, really. Because you know now I have yeah.
0: a footprint that will never go away. Um, I feel like all these corporations, like Deloitte, I feel like they've used they use the idea of you know, you're not allowed to post this on social media, or if you show your face as a member of this or whatever the case is, it's a way to silence the people. It's a way to make sure that, you know, like for union workers, like if somebody that works at Walmart or Target, like they don't want them speaking up about the unfair wages because they'll go fired. And that's a way to silence them because they know that they're paying them unfair wages and they know that they're in the wrong, but they have created such a fear in people that now people don't want to step up for it. Hence why these corporations keep getting away with shit like this.
1: Yeah. It's really just propagation of fear tactics and intimidation tactics. It's the same as a bully, you know, beating up a little kid in the, in the in recess and being like, if you tell anyone, I'm going to, I'm going to like ruin your life. I'm going to beat you up more. Right. This is a huge instance of, you know, silencing, you know, victims of sexual assault by saying, like, you're going to look stupid, or like, you're going to get fired. It's this idea that Mm -hmm. in order to make it to the top, and to make it to a place that you're not in fear anymore, which ultimately doesn't exist as a woman, especially, is you have to play by the rules of upholding white supremacy, and norms of immense suppression of, of voices, you know, it's something that like, for so long now, it's now it's mostly illegal, but like, Places could fire you for working in a union, um, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. that leave, these parameters, these norms that we set up as like, you can't be provocative on social media, like to yeah. some make sense because they're like, well, yeah, you have to be professional. And then it's like, well, why is professional the same thing as, as telling a woman to shut up and like telling a woman yeah. not to in a certain way? You know, it's something that, you know, even things like dress codes in a workplace, it's like I get like we we say like, oh, I get how you're not supposed to go in in like a casual t-shirt and shorts. But also like, why is it that we tell women with curly hair to straighten their hair? Why is it that those things matter? Why do tattoos impact the way that somebody can do work in front of other people, you know? Yeah. And, and, we, and so many people accept this as like, that's how it is. That's how it should be. Um, and I think that finally people are pushing back on it, but it still is like, that doesn't really do anything other than create this like, future generation hopefully of like more accepting people but like Mm -hmm. navigate it now when you know it's not like I was working for a small business that was like located near me that like I had this reputation in town it's like Mm -hmm. now it's Deloitte and there are millions of or not millions there's hundreds of thousands of employees there's thousands of executive people who you know like this is a blip on their radar you know like they'll get into scandals. They were in a scandal because they were working with ice, you know, like things like that, that are just like, I was a problem that their PR team needed to deescalate. And the way that mm-hmm. you do that is by feeding into tropes of this idea of like, of sexism, of, of just like generic ways of, of saying like, you know, well, like just disregard this person. And like, maybe if they fall into the ocean of full of sharks, like that's not my problem. You hmm And it's something that, like, cancel culture was originally created during the Me Too movement to prevent, like, Harvey Weinstein's from literally raping and and molesting people. And yeah, yeah, it's something that, that people, the average Joe feels so entitled to do, to cancel somebody for, like, you know, doing something that people think shouldn't be done but like that other people would do and that is like totally normal for someone to do mistake wise like cancel culture isn't supposed to exist for mistakes it is supposed to exist for repeated patterns of behavior and actions that negatively and detrimentally impact people you know and like there's a huge difference between cancelling somebody for that and then like cancelling somebody because it's a fun story or a fun like you're exposed bit of like rumor mill.
0: Um, I feel like cancel culture itself has gotten so out of hand. I mean, it's gone to a point where canceling people for just being themselves. And I'm not talking about being themselves in a way like, you know, they're committing crude acts or any of that. They're just out there living their lives. I don't know, maybe, maybe smoking weed on camera and are supposed to be in a professional environment at the moment or whatever the case is Like the littlest things they're being canceled for yeah. whereas originally this whole idea of canceling someone like you said was built was made because of assholes like hair like harvey weinstein to be able to let people know that this is not okay like yeah we want to make sure to go out there and stop people from committing crude acts like rape and molestation, yeah. sexual harassment, et cetera. And now it's just completely gotten out of hand.
1: Yeah. Cancel culture is, was built to prevent abuses of power and now it's being used as a tool of power against everyone. And mm-hmm. it is something that, you know, people advocate for like deplatform platform culture. And I'm like, well, the thing is like people like Tony Lopez and um, I don't even remember their name, the little blonde I'm girl yeah. or whatever, like, Zo- <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, these people aren't going to be deplatformed. They still have millions of followers. So then it, it does make sense, like remove their platform. That 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 is what you know. But it but it is something that like the internet doesn't have any administrative, you know, person keeping anyone accountable. You know, so it is just something where like people like to blame TikTok. Like when I was yeah. verified, people were like, everyone protests TikTok for verifying this girl who threatened to stab people. And it's like, who are you? Who are you asking to do that? Like it's an entire. Yeah software right like these this is so far beyond social media it's not a job it's not a company it's it's a a global platform like you don't you can't like YouTube has gotten better at it but YouTube has existed for decades you know and it took them decades to finally be able to figure out how you can like remove somebody's platform
0: um yeah I mean you you yourself were canceled for a while on social media on TikTok and I feel like That once again, another reason that cancel culture is so ridiculous, just because somebody has a different political point of view from you, which is not is not a good enough reason to cancel somebody like have a conversation. I on one side, I'm a very progressive person. And but I'm not going to sit here canceling somebody that is conservative for their point of view. I'm going to have a conversation with them. I'm going to ask them, okay, why do you believe this? I'm going to try to educate them. But when you cancel them, you're basically making them angry to a point where they don't want to hear you're stonewalling them.
1: Yeah. And it's also like cancel culture is so abstract nowadays. Like I, for example, didn't think that I was being like canceled. I just, I mean, I was, but like, I was sort of, (laughs) I was just literally being like brutalized, you know? And, And it's something that like, I didn't think of myself as being canceled because I was like, what on earth are people trying to cancel me for their misunderstanding of a video I made like that's not my fault that's like yeah canceling somebody for how for like wearing red and someone doesn't like red you know and I just think that that was something that for me was just like obviously I wasn't aware of everything that was being said about me I couldn't like I, I really there were not enough hours in the day I was also mm-hmm. moved for my safety into a different place I had to I was getting messages and and I had to navigate it all. I didn't have a lawyer. I, you know, it was such a new experience for me. Um, And it was something that, you know, like a lot of people were like, how did you not like just like hide under your covers? And I was like, I hid under my covers, but I was like texting, you know, like I hid under my covers, but I was like, this one, this experience is like, I think if I had been ridiculed for something that people disagreed with, for a reason that I felt was valid, or at least not stupid, I would mm-hmm. probably taken a step back. I would have been like, this, you know, like, obviously is stirring the pot, you know, why? But for mm-hmm. me, I was so frustrated by just like, the amount of stupidity applied about how like, people weren't Like some people were like, oh, you shouldn't use violence in any any context or like, oh, you know, there are consequences for your actions. You should have gotten fired, whatever. I like that's, I think, a hypocritical way to look at the situation, but it's Mm -hmm. as stupid as people who were like, you're violent, threatening to stab people. So for me, it was like it wasn't really a question. It was like, I am not going to let this incorrect misrepresenting narrative about me getting mm-hmm. like it was already out of my control I, it, people were expecting me to keep up with like these race cars going 100 miles an hour while I was on foot and I was mm-hmm. you know what I can do like basically all I can do is is put forward my narrative my words and then move on and that's what I did And I for a while really did move on into escape into a landscape of activism mm-hmm. it was like everything that I did was so villainized it was like the cancellation never ended and yeah. that, I think, took much more of a toll on me than the actual incident itself, was that everything that I made and everything that I said and how I said mm-hmm. it and when I said it and where I said it and whether or not I didn't say something was like, if I didn't talk about an issue, suddenly I was a fake activist. If I did talk about an issue, suddenly I was just like using activism as a trend for clout. And then it was also like people disagreed with me and it was just so frustrating how everything that i did was just like how people wanted to see it and and mm-hmm. living that type of life in an in in a very like controversial field you know like it wasn't like i was dancing or making comedic satire it was like i was talking yeah. about about world issues and and you know domestic issues and it was just something that you know was like the common sections never ended of people ridiculing me and mm-hmm. It wasn't even the death threats that got to me. It was just the like, just the constant hate, and it was also the constant hate on people who defended me. And so then, less and less people were like able to defend me because they were fearing for their like emotional Life. <laughs> right. Like it was yeah. where, like I would get texts from people being like, "I I just commented one support comment on your TikTok, and now people are spamming my comment section." And I'm like, "I'm sorry, like that sucked. Yeah. Um. And I felt like I was this perpetrator of like standing up for something that is, I think a hill worth dying on, but also Mm -hmm. a hill that, you know, is so painful to endure when you don't have to, like there's positivity you can do for the world of activism without, you know, sacrificing yourself to an internet full of sharks, you know? And I think that that's something that I've, been really discovering as I've really ramped up in November, in December and October, really ramped up my work with politics and with mm-hmm. public policy and, uh, you know, work for the better good. It's like, I don't need, like, I can use social media to give out information, but I don't have to. And I don't really want to anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like Twitter for TikTok that people will comment on and never understand in a way that they would if I weren't this like Asian woman from Harvard.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, that being said, you've had a lot of fallback from this video. So if you could go back and delete the viral video and take back the last couple of months and your newfound fame, would you do that?
1: Um, not in the context of having made TikTok. Like I don't regret posting the video. I kept the video up. It's still up i think looking back is like would i have not even like made a TikTok in the first place probably like and i i mean i can't ever go back and undo it but it's it wasn't really the video so much as just like the landscape of TikTok that being a creator and being somebody who tried to be anything other than literal was
0: just
1: mm-hmm. gonna work you know and i i don't wish that i could go back and like re-police myself into a more polite way right like yeah. But I I, th- I think that like, it's sort of one of those things that just like I got burned. And if I could go back and not light the fire, I would. But like, mm-hmm. it was something that I've gotten a lot out of it. I can't, I can't waste or I, I just don't have the, you know, capacity to, to think alternatively about a world that won't exist, um, mm-hmm. such as not having posted the TikTok or making a TikTok. So I guess for the most, I'm not trying to undo what I did. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to move forward in in ways that I can defend and, and stand by myself.
0: I mean, at that expense, there's no point of sitting here and being like, what if I had done it this way? What if I had done that? Because let's be honest, that's a rabbit hole. None of us want to fall down. Yep. <laughs> um. So you talk a lot about being a Asian woman that is a very, um very politically active, mm-hmm. but how do you feel about becoming the face of the BLM movement not being black? Yeah. And do you feel like you're taking the stage away from someone who is black and could speak to their own experience?
1: Yeah. So I think the easiest answer for me to say is that there I I fully have always wondered if I'm doing something wrong or if I'm not mm-hmm. doing enough. I think that for me, it's something that in high school, for example, with with the initial outbreak of Black Lives Matter, with um, you know. Michael Brown, I very much was the person who was uplifting Black voices. I was just a member in a protest or an audience. I went to so many civil rights, you know, speeches and et cetera. And it was so important for me to learn. And in college, I I really did that. I I took African-American studies courses. I took, you know, gender and, and political studies courses as well. And it was something that, for me, was so meaningful to read and hear from these people, these tremendous voices in, in activism and civil rights and and issues beyond, obviously, just Black Lives Matter. But then, you know, it was something that, for me, when I started speaking about Black Lives Matter, I had a following of about 30,000 on TikTok, not a huge one. But it for me, was like, that's maybe 30,000 people, potentially, even if it's only like 1,000, who yeah. I can talk about things with. and. It was something that on TikTok was like I had things to say, and I think that mm-hmm. for me, I never tried to speak for Black Lives Matter, but I normally mm-hmm. tried to speak in defense of it, or in awareness of it, or in you know satirical, comedic relief of it. You know, and a lot of my videos were just like, "Fuck racism," like whatever, because it, it, it for me is like. I'm Jewish, I'm Chinese, I'm American, I'm, you know, educated, I'm also poor, like there's so much variety. And when somebody who isn't poor, or isn't Jewish, or isn't Chinese talks about issues, you know, it's very different to give prescriptive advice and say, like, you should do this for the Asian American community, versus like, you should stop prescribing whatever stereotypes and mentality you have, because you will never understand it. And that's what I tried to do. And when I blew up, I think. I took a step back because I was like, holy shit, like, I can't detract from the Black Lives Matter movement. I can't be this, like, victim that's not Black of the Black Lives Matter movement Right? Like tried to do. And ultimately, I think do- in doing that, not only was I trying, I you know, like I said, I duetted mm-hmm. people who made videos for me, but it was also a way of trying to de-escalate the conflict, you know, that was something that was sort of like watching you know a, a house burn and like figuring out what to put out first but honestly but then being like oh my god there's other like my house is only burning because I was trying to do something to help others like it's it's very hard to feel selfless in a situation that like is so in front of you and impactful of your life but for me was something that got the entire thing every day I was on phone calls and and zooms and conversations with people that I knew in like Black Lives Matter activism or people who had reached out to me who were like black organizers or activists or even black classmates and teachers that I had had. And ultimately the answer is like, you know, when men talk about feminism or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, people talk when about other issues, it's like, if you have an audience that may or may not listen to you, it's better to try to use it than to not and Mm -hmm. it's okay to make mistakes along the way you know and like i would never speak negatively on behalf of a movement that belonged to a group that wasn't mine Mm -hmm. because i won't ever know enough about the sides of the victim or the perpetrator um but i do try to speak on behalf of injustice and oftentimes victims of that are people that are not in my demographic identity Mm -hmm. but it's also like identity politics and identity shouldn't prevent you from utilizing what you have positively and right. redirecting people. So Instagram, for example, I spent months solely resharing just infographics, things like that, like sharing links, etc. because that was how I learned. And I wanted to share with people what I was learning. Um, mm-hmm. But on TikTok, it was a lot harder because it's like my face, you know, and like that was something that was really difficult to bring awareness to issues when like, I, I don't want to appear to be having this like black savior complex, but mm-hmm. think that, that was another way of gaslighting people who speak out about issues is by saying like, this doesn't impact you, so shut up. But the people right. who were saying that weren't advocates of the Black Lives Matter community. They were mm-hmm. predominantly all lives matter people who wanted to find a yeah. reason to hate you, you know? And it was something that like, I would never, I will never do everything right, right? but. Mm-hmm. It's something that you have to look at who's criticizing you and, and mm-hmm. why, you know, and think, is this because I'm actually doing something wrong that I could be doing better? Or is this because people will always find a way to try to shut people up and, and right. seeing what direction the controversy is coming from? And I think that was something that was very helpful to me at the time.
0: It's great that you recognize that along the whole process is that like you are becoming this face of the movement and you recognize that, wait a minute, this is not what I want happening. Like, I don't want to take away from the movement. I don't want to take away from what the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to um, talk about and focus on you being canceled because of something that people took out of context. So I love that you recognize it. And it's great that you after recognize it made step towards that change.
1: Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is that the internet like never sees learning, right? Like they mm-hmm. never see your steps of realization or of re-becoming or unbecoming or rediscovering and discovering who you want to be and how you want to do it, right? Like the internet isn't always going to crucify you without giving you an opportunity to explain your thought process and unless you share it with the world and even if you do Mm -hmm. share it you'll be criticized but like unless or until you do the internet will run in whatever direction they want to and you kind Mm -hmm. of for me it was like you either have to let them or you have to defend yourself in a way that is consistent with with what you want to do and like i made mistakes there were times when i was petty and rude or (laughs) and reactive and impulsive but like we're all human, you know, like this isn't, I'm not, I'm not a corp. I'm not here publishing journalism or literature. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a huge way that I needed to forgive myself for Mm -hmm. maybe like saying something sarcastic, right? Like no one apologizes for tweets. And yet so much of TikTok is just like tweets. Within comments. (laughs) And like, even just like making videos that would be tweets in and of themselves. Like, and it's just something that's so easy to, that everyone's being literal on tiktok and like no one's being literal on twitter um or mm-hmm. being like sarcastic um but yeah i mean it's there's no way to win and so you kind of just have to go and and do what you can with what you have in a way that is is good and true to you
0: yeah i mean i feel like just with the blm movement itself like it's important to have allies like allies are such a great and important part of making sure that your voice is heard mm-hmm. i'm as i'm going to talk in a more smaller scale about as a woman, you know, like I can sit there and try to explain to some men that women are paid less or women have less rights or, you know, just like the microaggressions towards women, all of this stuff. And a man's not going to listen to me. And this is something that has happened to me in my life multiple times. And it's happened with my friends. It happened with my family, et cetera. Trying to explain this situation, like as a woman being like, well, you know, women are paid less. And then I have my brother or a friend that is a male and um they'll step in and be like actually that is the case like here are some statistics here are some numbers the same numbers that i was showing yeah but it's like these men they step in and they're like yeah well that is true and i agree with you and then they also share that same sentiment and for some reason these other men listen because they're like oh you're part of my side but you agree with these people so maybe there's some reason i should be listening to this yeah like I don't understand the psychology behind it. I mean, I guess I do a little bit, but at the same time. It's like
1: in-group versus out-group, court, like, compliance, right? And and this is something that exists so much, like, in terms of kind of we see these ideas of, like, like representatives or, like, you know, diversity, recruitment, etc. But, like, statistics and psychology show that, like, sex ed does better when you have representatives or, or you know, people with different genders, you know, so that it's not just like a woman talking about a man or a man talking about a woman. And mm-hmm. it sucks that you, to talk about feminism, you need the allyship of men, right. When they're like, right. them. but in reality, it's like, you look at all the people and they're like documentaries on people who come from like a very wealthy background who are like, if you don't tax us, people won't donate. I wouldn't donate if I, right. And it in hearing that adds a sense of credibility to mm-hmm. this idea that perpetrators of systemic and historical injustice can recognize their benefactors of that and recognize mm-hmm. what is necessary and what should be done to counteract that moving forward and i yeah. think that that's something that like again it comes with this idea of like radical acceptance is really mm-hmm. radicalism because you have to accept that the world is at a different place than you are in terms of your radical beliefs but and you have to accept that, but you can also utilize that to your advantage. And that's mm-hmm. what I think so much of the, of these movements are doing and what social organizing is, like social media, et cetera. It's like a lot of people like to say like, oh my God, Black Lives Matter is just a trend to people. And it probably was just a trend to people. But the reality mm-hmm. is, is that there were millions more people who were now supporting and aware of a movement than were before, right? Yeah. And I think that that in and of itself, drastically changes things because we, we can't look at something like the desegregation of schools as like, Oh, suddenly because of this political change, everyone agreed with it. No. Right. That was something that like the radical acceptance of the norm in society to now have integrated schools helped over generations, normalize it. And I mm-hmm. think the radical acceptance of black lives matter as something that is crucial to our generation is mm-hmm. that, like 10 years from now, maybe less, maybe more, there's going to be much more done. For it mm-hmm. we are in this part of history that no one thinks things will happen and the people who are making it happen are the ones that are being crucified and are devoting their life you know and like right. i can't even count myself in that category of people and maybe i will maybe i won't mm-hmm. but you know it's something that there's a future and a history to everything that's happening and i think acknowledging that is very important to stop trying to live life so like black and white or so Mm -hmm. this is right this is wrong or like this is how it can
0: be Um, but kind of
1: navigating how you want it to be and how you can get there
0: Right. I mean, speaking of um, trends, I feel like a lot of the um, on social media with the black boxes, when people were posting back in the summer, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it, people felt like it was performative activism, mm-hmm. especially now as well. During Black History Month, a lot of people are talking about, you know, black um, businesses to support or talking about posting about the history of um basically the black history all of this stuff and a lot of people are posting on that saying well this is just performative activism like are you, do you actually mean anything by it or is it just to show that you're in support uh, so what are your thoughts on that do you feel like this is in a way yes it is performative activism for some people but do you feel like that's a positive thing at the end of the day because at least it's reaching people that may not have been reached I mean, I think like the easiest
1: way to answer it is is what you just said. Yeah, it's reaching people that would not have been reached, but also, you know, this idea of performative activism is like, again, applying it on an individual scale is so harsh. Like applying it mm-hmm. to loit versus like someone who would never talk about politics who is all of a sudden sharing information on Harriet Tubman, right? Like mm-hmm. that's a learning experience. There is no yeah. like we're all learners, like life learners, and there's a way of saying like yeah, maybe this person wasn't on the top of their cafeteria table talking about Black Lives Matter when they were in eighth grade or twelfth grade, but, like, they're trying now, and they're making steps in that direction, and I think steps are better, right? And how mm-hmm. all these people, especially celebrities and white people, who had posted black boxes and then didn't do anything differently. Yeah. Um, but even then, you know, it signals this idea of making it normal to... stand in solidarity even if if there's so many people who put black boxes who are probably racist and like supported all lives matter and like are a lot more conservative than that signals like that's performative but it's the same as like a lot of people don't know you know what the super bowl is and like watch it or like pretend Mm -hmm. like it like that's performative support and fanship but and that's a really horrible example but Something like that is like, but then all of a sudden it becomes this thing that is so embedded into the conscious of the American public. Like I know about this people today. Have I ever watched it? No. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so many people now are aware of things like defund the police, abolish the police, are aware of names like Angela Davis and Stacey Abrams that like wouldn't have. And it is now embedded into the consciousness of like four years ago the 2016 election had the number of people who had been performative activists or like put on a vote shirt for instagram i definitely think hillary clinton would have won you know and that shows how much this like surface level performance matters in in the psyche of democracy and i think that that's something that like again it's very simple and easy to see as like problematic because it is but like problematically good is a lot better than not at all um yeah or or problematically bad and I think that like for people to be willing to be to even like share that you know like I remember like I'm in an echo chamber of Harvard students but a lot of them come from conservative backgrounds and for them like putting something on their story Mm -hmm. is a big step because they're coming from like predominantly suburban white neighborhoods and and to that it's like yeah, like, normalizing that, you know, like, normalizing being the guy who's like, dude, don't say she's a slut, you know, like, yeah. normalizing the deconstruction of everything being political being like, oh, like, shh, don't talk about it, you know, I think is important. Like, I even look at the statements made by Deloitte, and like, they wouldn't have made that four years ago, they didn't make it four years ago, you know, yeah. like putting pressure on societal norms and trends is a net positive for movement. Yeah.
0: I feel like by eventually at the more pressure you put like people, yes, at the beginning they're acting and, you know, it's just doing it because of like societal pressures and stuff, but the more you keep pushing and the more um, society moves that way, eventually people will start to see that that is the correct way. That is like how you want history to move towards. So, I mean, I feel like at the end of the day, I, I'm not, I'm, as long as there is activism towards helping people and that doing good, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah,
1: 100% agreed.
0: Okay, Clara, so we're just gonna wrap this up now, um, but I do have one last question for you. So through this whole experience, you've basically become a public figure. Do you have any plans on what you wanna do with this newfound platform or what, um, basically what are your plans for the future?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, having been like scandalized on the internet and now not having that digital anonymity that so many people do entering the workforce, but also this like vast experience now in activism Mm -hmm. at a much bigger scale than just like being a, being someone who cares about these issues or like works on campaigns has made me want to go into a world of public service to some degree. And right now, um, at least immediately this summer, I'm working on Uh, doing vaccine distributions in third world countries, predominantly because, you know, we're living in a pandemic that is so impactful and yet more of the world than won't, um, like, or more of the world world won't than will have access to those vaccines. And, you know, the number of people that are dying around the world because they don't even have political systems that would Mm. distribute vaccines is something that is very important to me. And I think the steps that I'm trying to do now are just to to do things that I have the ability, the energy and the support to do with knowing the amount of resources that there are in supporting these, you know, public service jobs, you know, like there's so much to be done and so much infrastructure to help it. And it's just a matter of volunteering yourself to that. And I think mm-hmm. that that's something that, you know, I, I think I want to continue a life more behind the scenes of progress and activism, um, mm-hmm. even if it's politically in America. Um, but, you know, at least hopefully moving forward, I can utilize my experience positively.
0: Okay. Well, I love that you still want to stay involved in the activism and, you know, you still want to continue that hold down the, you still want to continue down that road. I love it. I feel like you're very much on the right path and we need people like you. So mm-hmm. I love that you're still staying in part of that. <laughs> Thank you so much. And thanks for having me today. It was wonderful to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. (laughs) Yeah, of course. All right, everyone. That was Clara Janover. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye.